the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John chapter 14 verses 1 to 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that come from my mouth make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's Bible passage is the passage that I have preached on the most. Jackson asked me to try and guess before the 7.30 service this morning, and at best guess around 150 times, I reckon, I've preached on this passage, but it's also the passage that some of you might get a little bit of hope as I say this, that I've preached on for the shortest amount of time. Um, Psalm 23 might be the most uh, commonly used passage for funerals, but John 14, to 6 is the passage that has been used the most amount of times in the funerals that I've conducted. Maybe because I will often recommend it to families. But when I am speaking on it, particularly at a funeral service, I generally sum up this passage in a few sentences. So it's a unique treat, for me at least, to spend a little bit more time on it this morning than what I would usually do. On the one hand, this is an obvious passage for this series that we are in at the moment, From Death to Life particularly because of its frequency uh, of being heard at a funeral service. But on the other hand, it's not. Because despite what some might suggest, I don't think this passage has anything to do with what happens to us after we die. But I do believe it can be very helpful in our understanding of both death and life. This passage, in my humble opinion, contains one of the most misinterpreted, misused, and abused verses in the Bible. This one. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This verse is quoted to win arguments with non-Christians and prove that Christians are right and everyone else is wrong. 
It's used as a reason for exclusion for the kingdom of God, heaven, or simply just for excluding people because you feel like it. This verse has been used more like a weapon of exclusion rather than a radical invitation to comfort and inclusion that I now see that it is. We live in times when the spotlight is quite bright over the Christian faith. So it's important that we understand this passage. And so when people are critical of us, that we can engage with a verse like verse 6. It's one of the most recognisable verses of our faith. But it is a verse that many struggle with, Christians and non-Christians alike. This wider passage, these six verses, are part of a greater passage that is known as Jesus' Farewell Discourse by biblical scholars, which runs all the way from chapter 13 all the way through to chapter, end of chapter 17. These are Jesus' final words to his disciples. It's important to note that who he's speaking to are those who are closest to him. And he's trying to prepare them for his death and the coming of the Holy Spirit to give them some insight into what the resurrection will mean for them and for the world. Not surprisingly, they are finding it very difficult to comprehend what Jesus is saying. Despite, as we read in the Gospels, it seeming to be quite clear that Jesus is saying it a number of times. But in John's account, we see in these chapters Peter objecting to having his feet washed, Judas leaving to go and betray Jesus, Peter wanting to follow where Jesus is going, and Jesus foretelling that Peter will deny him. And in this particular passage of six verses, we see Thomas ask a confused question. Can you imagine how those disciples were feeling? The confusion, the fear that must have been rattling around in their heads. By the time they get to these verses in chapter 14, they are aware that Jesus is going away somewhere and they are not able to follow him. Jesus is trying to help them, to prepare them to deal with his physical death and to help them and prepare them to understand what the big picture, God's big picture is and their part in it. But they're still not getting it. In a response to this confusion and fear, Jesus tries to explain that he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. Now, it's a big question of this passage. What does Jesus mean by the expression his father's house. Despite some popular opinion, I'm personally convinced that Jesus does not mean heaven. I know that might be a little shocking to some of you. What does he mean? What does Stuart think he means? Where's he going off the rails? Where's he going? 
Well, if you go back to chapter 2, the very beginning of John's Gospel, as Jesus is getting moving in the community, we come across a very clear answer to the question. Jesus says, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Where is here? Jesus was in the temple. He referred to his father's house. The temple in Jerusalem as being his father's house. So, does this mean that Jesus is going to go to the temple in Jerusalem and prepare a place for all of the disciples? No, I don't think that's what Jesus is meaning. He's already told them earlier in, um, chapter, later in chapter 2, after he's overturned the tables, that the temple will be physically destroyed. But also that there will be a spiritual or metaphoric raising up of, the, of a new temple. But interestingly, within the temple grounds, there were actually places where people could stay, particularly pilgrims who were on a journey to the temple, could stay in these little rooms and get rest and refreshment for the return leg of their pilgrimage. People could stay there temporarily while they were close to the wonder that was the Jewish temple. So there is important imagery going on in Jesus' narration here. Since the construction of the first temple, the temple was a representation of God's presence. If you remember the story of the Exodus, you'll, know, you'll remember that um, God would come and regularly meet with Moses and his face would shine and that often would happen in a tent. Well, as they settled in the promised land, the people of Israel wanted to contain God's presence and build a temple. And so the holiest of holies was the place where God's presence would appear. And while only the high priests could enter this special sacred place, Pilgrims would travel to be close to God's presence. So I'm going to paraphrase these verses as I understand them. Now, I don't want to presuppose that there are other ways of expressing or understanding this passage. There are many ways of understanding most of the different parts of the Bible, including this one. But this is... What makes sense to me after preaching on this passage over 150 times, after really exploring what other scholars do say about what this is on about and what I find connection with. And I wonder whether you might find connection with this too. Jesus says, In my Father's presence, there is a place of acceptance and identity for many including you. I'm doing what I'm doing so that you can all be a part of this. And once it's done, I'll be able to invite you to experience God's enduring, ongoing, eternal presence. 
I've told you where I'm going and why. And I just love Thomas's reaction. Thomas is my favourite uh, identity in Scripture. At a time of heightened emotion, fear and confusion, Thomas cries out, Lord, I just don't get it. I don't actually know where you're going, so how do you expect me to know how to get there? And now for Jesus' response. In it, I don't see dogma. I don't see legalism. I don't see judgment. I can imagine Jesus looking directly at Thomas, full of compassion, love and understanding for what Thomas is experiencing, his range and roller coaster of emotions. And I can imagine him saying, It's okay, Thomas. I've got this one covered. Look at me. Do you want the relationship that I have with the Father? Then just trust me. Just believe in me. Continue to follow me. Because you know already that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll get there together. Where are they going? They're going to be in God's presence. Always. Not just for a temporary moment, not just when there's a pilgrimage, but always. Hearing this passage in this way brings me comfort. Knowing that all I need to do is focus on Jesus brings me reassurance and direction. But it also confronts and challenges because I have to take the focus away from myself, my insecurities, my fears, my confusions, and just trust in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus sounds simple, but I'm sure most of you agree that in practicality it can be really hard. And I passionately want what Jesus is talking about and offering to Thomas and the rest of those disciples. That intimate, loving relationship with the Father. But to get that, experience that, to live in that relationship, part of the process is letting go of my fears and trusting and following Jesus' language of father and son points to a sense of unique intimacy. A sense of intimacy that I don't see in any other world religion. Humanity's encounter with Jesus, the son, makes it possible to have a relationship with God, the father. And this is the intimacy that we're invited into through Jesus. If you ever thought that this passage was simply about who's in and who's out, then I would encourage you to take a deeper look at it. To look and see that it's actually not directed at those outside of the Christian faith. 
It's directed to those who were closest to Jesus. And today it's directed to you and me. It's comfort for those who follow Jesus. It's our invitation to intimacy. God doesn't call me to be right. God calls me to love. God isn't pleased with my correct doctrine as much as God is pleased with kindness, humility and compassion. At least that is what I learned from the Old Testament prophets and from Jesus' confrontations with the religious authorities of his day. And if we want to know how to live well, how to live with kindness, humility and compassion, then we just need to look towards Jesus and to be as much as we possibly can to be like Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life that we are called to live. I heard it described this week that Jesus is the perfect icon of God. There is no better way, there is no easier way to understand who God is than in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no better place to actually be than in the presence of God. One of the great things about relationships is that you get to learn about others. And one of the things I learned very quickly about um, Anne McGuinness, chaplain of all saints, is one of her pet peeves. And that is people leading church services who either welcome or invite people into God's presence or who invite God's presence into our places. It annoys you, doesn't it? Yes, she's nodding. (laughs) She makes the valid point that God's presence is already where we are and where everyone else is. Because of what Jesus was about to do and has done in his death and resurrection, God's presence was let loose here on earth as it is in heaven. As I mentioned in the first week of this series, we are living in the kingdom of God right now. We don't have to wait until we die. Always has already started. I'm sure many of you have heard an evangelist say, perhaps you were convinced by their words, Do you know where you'll be if you die tomorrow? As effective as that question may have been and might continue to be, it doesn't have its origin in John 14, 1 to 6. I'm actually not sure it has a firm basis in Scripture at all, but that's a much longer conversation. What we do see in John 14, 1 to 6 is the answer to the disciples' question, where will we be when you die tomorrow, Jesus? And his answer is, 
you will be in God's presence and invited into the intimacy that I have shown you is possible. This is God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. But while on earth, God's presence continues to be filtered and clouded by our sin, our brokenness, our self-interest and that of those around us. When we die, I expect that God's presence will be unfiltered, unhindered. We will be restored. The earth will be restored as well. And we will see and experience God's presence like we cannot begin to imagine. Heaven is not Disneyland in the sky as we're sometimes led to imagine it is. It's God's unfiltered eternal presence in our resurrection. That's what scripture seems to point towards. So the purpose of believing in and following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, is not just so we get to heaven in the end. It is to be alive in God's presence right now. Always has already begun. When we do encounter death, whether it be the death of those who we love, or when we approach our own death, we will more than likely be keeping good company with Thomas, encountering all those emotions of fear and confusion that he names. But we will not be met with wishes and promises of things like a Disneyland in the sky by our God. We are met by Jesus with comfort and intimacy. That we can experience both in our mourning of those who we've loved and lost, and as we continue to live, we can continue to experience that comfort and intimacy. But in our dying, as we approach eternal life, we are also gifted that intimacy and that comfort. We're not met with judgment when we cry out as Thomas did, Lord, I just don't get it. I don't actually know how it all physically works. So how do you expect me to be able to explain it to somebody else, let alone understand it myself? We're met with Jesus, full of compassion, love and understanding. The perfect icon of God who says both in our living and in our dying, it's okay, I've got this one covered. Look at me, just trust in me, believe in me, continue to follow me, the way, the truth and the life and we'll get there together. And where are we going? To continue to be in God's presence always. 
eternally. That's why this passage for me continues to be the perfect one to choose for a family who's gathering, friends who are gathering to mourn the loss of someone that they loved. To assure them that this is not the end of the story, that love is continuing. But it's also perfect for us as we continue, continue to explore what it means for us to have life and to experience death. But let's not wait until we're sitting in a place like this at our next funeral to consider these words again. Let's let them challenge us, confront us, maybe even change us. Because that's what living is. Following the way, the truth and life leads to change. And I pray that we, as a community of faith, might be an amazing reflection of the change and the resurrection that is occurring in us now, a foretaste of heaven, a glimpse of the radiance of the always present God who is with us, who will be with us now in our living and in our dying as we are brought to eternal life. Amen. invite you to stand with our amazing worship team as they sing even more. Mm-hmm.